0: The passage of this bill, I believe, is an investment in Alaska's future. In my opinion, this is the worst bill I've ever seen as a member of the legislature. Those vetoes, I think, are harmful to public education. I've learned one very strong thing is you don't always know people's motives.
1: They appear to have a head in the sand approach to budgeting, I'm disappointed I'll be sending a letter today.
0: We're in the governing business, we're not in the kicking the can business.
2: Welcome to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Giltobin. I'm Mike Mason. Today, we're going to have reaction to Governor Dunleavy's State of the State speech that was delivered on Tuesday, January 30th. We are joined by veteran State Representative Andy Josephson and freshman State Representative Genevieve Mina. We are recording today's episode of the Empty Office podcast several minutes after the conclusion of the State of the State speech. Before delving into the substance of the governor's speech, what are your big picture takeaways from the speech? And I'd like to begin with the man who has listened to the most of these speeches, Representative Andy Josephson. Big picture. What did you think of the governor's speech? Uh,
0: Mike, you know that I'm a nice guy,
2: right? You're a great guy. And
0: and so under the heading of let's have a conversation, uh, I'm going to be a nice guy. It it was a state of the state address. I thought it was uninspired. Um, I thought it was sort of the same substance as before, uh, not enough kids, not enough cranes, for example. Um, I think that uh, the governor doesn't use power especially well. I, I would use it differently. But, you know, lucky him, he's the governor, I'm not. Um, I would spend more capital, particularly if I'd won two elections in a row, and and throw my hat in the game relative to things like big fiscal questions and, and the structural deficit and, and those trickier questions. You know, there there were some obvious inconsistencies. He talked about how um, education can't just be about dollar signs, quote-unquote, but then talks about the importance of dollar signs to incentivize people to teach in Alaska um, and dollar signs in the form of a full PFD. So those are some of the things I saw. Um, He he certainly doesn't like special interests. Um, I don't know what that means, um, but he doesn't like them. Uh, And he also at the end talked about Establishment forces, which is sort of national rhetoric we've heard from a, a certain candidate. Um, and, and I don't uh, sort of subscribe to that approach either. So I, I was uninspired by it.
3: I think one part that I find very intriguing is this idea that it's not about the funding, particularly for education, but highlighted the Alaska Reads Act, which I think is a really great start to good state policy, but it's not funded. So We're focusing on incentivizing classroom teachers, but not the reading coaches, the educator mentors, the support staff that really help deploy reading in the classroom. And that's really where I wanted to dig in more, is that we do have some really great legislation that has passed that is not well supported. And how do we, as legislators, continue working on forward progress if the things that we have done aren't being well propagated, well administered, and well run.
2: Representative Mina, your big picture takeaways from the governor's speech. This is the second one you've seen in person.
1: He opened up with talking about opportunity and I absolutely agree, and I think most of us can agree that opportunity is the one area that we really need to capitalize in a state that's experiencing so much brain drain, vacancies everywhere, and the failure to deliver on basic state services. However, it's the framing of what that opportunity looks like. And the way that the governor speaks about opportunity is in the context of building more seeing cranes, in these big picture ideas. But sometimes you don't need to have big revolutionary ideas to improve the state that we're at right now, especially if we can't deliver on basic needs like feeding people, housing people. So he touches about, touches on affordable housing and he touches on food security. But when we're talking about big projects like, you know, the the failure to deliver on Pebble Mine or drilling in the Arctic Refuge. What I think about is what can we do to make steps to invest in our state in a way that we can continue to maintain and fund? And so sometimes it's not about seeing cranes everywhere and having big projects. It's about what can we do to figure out sustainable funding so we can maintain what we have? And this is a big conversation that we're talking about when we're trying to figure out the future of our state, this goes back to you know a housing summit that I think all of us attended um, by the Municipality of Anchorage. And we had a uh, big urbanist engineer advocate, Chuck Marone speak. And he talks about how it's not about having to be obsessed with having big investments in big construction over and over again. What can we do to look at what we have and make those steps to make this area more livable? And I think that's what we really need to be investing in in terms of attracting people to come to the state and also not pushing them out to leave. There's a
3: interesting phrase that we use in the nonprofit sector, a mile wide or an inch deep or a mile deep and an inch wide. And I keep thinking about this applied to state government. We need to do government well. Mm-hmm. That creates right. the regulatory environment, that creates the innovation, that creates the space for private industry and businesses to come in and really hit the ground running. And right now I just don't feel like we're seeing government be done well. I was looking at a recent report and it said that on average within state government that we had a 17.3% vacancy rate in 2023. That means some of our departments experienced a vacancy rate that was much higher than 17.3%, which to me feels egregious. I can understand why folks are looking around them and thinking this might not be the place that I want to spend the next 20, 25 years. And I was hoping that we would hear things like let's reinstate defined benefits to ensure that our state employees know we care about them now and far into the future. Let's talk about how we have expanded pre-K and will continue to invest in high-quality early learning systems so that folks can get back to work and feel good about helping us move our economy forward while their young kiddo is learning all the steps that they need to become active and engaged citizens. I was, I was hoping for that, and it just didn't feel like that ever came to fruition.
2: So this conversation so far is uh, three policymakers talking about policy. But I want to talk about the speech and kind of the, the rhetoric and the the aspiration. To date, and I've been in this building since 2015, I have yet to hear a really good state of the state that I thought was aspirational with substance behind it. And this was just one more example of a kind of a missed opportunity, in, in my opinion. Senator Tobin, is there anything to be said about using the bully pulpit of the state of the state to inspire people to go somewhere together.
3: I will have to give the governor credit because I do think he almost got there. I really enjoyed his line of dialogue around the concept and beliefs that his father-in-law inspired in him. And I think the phrase was, My father-in-law did not believe in an either or, but an all of the above. And that really gets to the heart of how we go forward together. It's a yes and approach. We've got to learn to say your needs, your beliefs, your business should not prevent or prohibit us from being innovative in these spaces. And I really appreciated him calling out the idea that one person's opportunity is not another person's liability, that the concept that we hear from some of our partners in the energy generation space, that renewables will prevent the ability to continue to explore new pockets of natural gas or potentially result in higher rates to utility payers. I am tired of the no I want to hear us get to yes. And I do think the governor almost got to what I was hoping we would hear, which is a call to action to say, how do we move forward? We've got to start saying yes and. We can do it all. It doesn't have to be at the sacrifice of new technology, renewables, or innovation.
2: Andy J., I've heard you talk on the floor of the uh, Alaska House of Representatives about Bobby Kennedy and, and other uh, uh, Democratic champions that uh, you have uh, uh, spoken about and, and and honor. The rhetoric and kind of the aspiration seems to be missing out of these speeches uh, uh, for the state of the state, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that um, while he talks about, you know, that my yes doesn't have to be your no, there's really this, this um, theme that goes through the speech about winners and losers, right? So- there's no concern with um, uh, folks who live in the, um, you know, in in near the uh, gates of the Arctic who don't want the Ambler mining district, or folks who live near Pebble who adamantly, in great numbers, oppose the Pebble Mine. There, there's no sort of balanced view, and and you hear that in the rhetoric about the the evil federal government, fifty-six executive actions by the current president, that sort of thing. Uh, it it really is a sort of us versus them speech. Now, he did concede that some of the no's, that is, some of the anti-movement, and, and we could debate what that means, are coming from Alaska. That was an interesting point. He was, to his credit, he was good on renewables. He seems to have a good record uh, with respect to renewables. Um, I know that Chris Rose, I think I can tell you, feels that way. I thought the most poignant part was uh, his introducing the mayor of Wrangell and her story, her biography, which is a compelling one, uh, and we all know about the tragedy uh, of that that landslide there but but, for example, for example, he talked about charter schools above all. Well, there are thirty of them out of five hundred schools. What about the four hundred and seventy on the other side of the ledger? No reference. In fact, his theory is they just don't need money. It's not just about money, according to him. and so i I think that that there is a lot of us versus them going on. You asked about um loftier inspiring rhetoric and speeches i did hear governor walker once give an address uh state of the state talking about growing up as a boy in valdez and the impact of the earthquake and 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 how uh, visceral that was for him and he talked about living in delta and and surviving in 50 below as a boy and that sort of thing um i so i can i can recall one particularly inspiring speech he gave but no i view this as mostly a sort of missed opportunity
3: is it weird that we all often quote Martin Luther King Jr. or other notable figures like Barack Obama when we think of those aspirational, hope-driven speeches. And I keep wondering, when does Alaska get one of those figures? When do we get to hear someone say, I'm one of you, I believe in where we're going, and I want to get there with you, figuring out how we can better lives for everybody? When do we get that candidate?
1: Well, I would say that one of the most inspiring speeches that I've heard um, a couple of years ago—I want to say it was about 2019—during one of the women's marches in Anchorage, and it was uh, a an event. At the Lusak Library, there's a lot of really incredible BIPOC women who are speakers. And one of the speakers was, well, actually two different ones, right? So it opened up with a land acknowledgement by my friend Ruth Miller, who is an incredible Indigenous advocate, now turned future Broadway star. She's fantastic. I've grown up with her. And she just gave a really compelling, grounding land acknowledgement, done in a way that has so much depth. She's Denina And to really bring forth people together. But what really sticks out to my mind today is when Val Davidson spoke and she just led with her personal story. And when you're an accomplished woman like Val Davidson, who has multiple degrees, is a lawyer, who's served in many positions in state government and is also representing an identity that's not seen very much, when you just say, hey, I have an incredibly high adverse childhood experiences score. Like, I shouldn't be in this position. And just being very straight up about who you are and where you've come from and what we need to do, that's inspiring to a lot of people. And there's not a lot of folks who can do that if you're coming from a conventional background for people who are giving these type of inspiring speeches that are supposed to bring people together. So I think what sticks out if you're trying to give a compelling state of the state is also just who you are as an individual and why you're there. And so if you're coming from a conventional background, sometimes your specific experience doesn't stick out. But I've also seen Governor Walker give speeches that have made me cry. So I, I think being genuine is really what makes it matter.
3: And that's probably why this part of this speech that sticks out to me is when the governor did talk about his Mm -hmm. wife and Mm -hmm. her father-in-law and the things that he took from that relationship. And I was leaning in at that point. And when we started to get into some of the rhetoric, uh, I, I ended up sitting back in my seat, albeit... Listening to him talk about how Alaska should be more like Iceland, I was about to stand up and be like, yes, let's j- let's close our gender pay gap. Let's have universal pre-K from first to six years old. Let's have all publicly funded universities that are zero tuition. I'm in. Where do we sign up for that bill packet? Let's do that.
2: One of the things, and since I have Rep Josephson here, uh, I wanted to ask about there was no mention of climate change at all, not even a, not even a hint in this particular speech, which I think is kind of a dereliction of duty because we are facing an existential crisis with climate change and all of the various aspects of that. Uh, is that disappointing at all? or is that just to be expected with these kinds of things?
0: Well, um, I think it's to be expected. The um, you know, he, he does claim to have an, an all of the above approach. And so he wants fossil fuels extracted, but also did talk about renewables. And he, and he's legitimately pushing uh, legislation both for a green bank, not called that, and a renewable portfolio standard bill. And I, I think he genuinely is. And in fact, I've been surprised the legislature has been sort of slow moving on those. But yeah, climate it gets a little bit too left for him. Uh, and it's just not his vision. Um, his vision is... Seems to be sort of the 1950s or something. Uh, he'd like to take us back to some other year, as far as I can tell. The, the, the continual comment about the need to procreate and have more children is sort of odd to me because he, he, he dislikes social engineering, but that sort of strikes me as a sort of another form of social engineering. It's just a weird thing to sort of discuss. Um, I know it's discussed in industrial countries like Japan and Italy uh, for sure. Um, and he talked about population decline elsewhere, but he associates that as sort of the be all and end all in, um, robust economies and thriving, uh, economic futures. And, and I just, I just don't, it's just, I, I can't relate to it. I don't understand what he's saying.
2: Anybody else want to weigh in on the climate change aspect of it? Because it just seems like something that, uh, whether you believe in like the, 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 the science of climate change, it seems like we're at the position where the leader of a state like Alaska that is at the front lines of climate change should at least address the issue and and give it some voice.
3: I mean, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, Mike. Uh, we'll have our conversations about the thinning of sea ice, the collapse of fisheries, the fact that I have not seen a Bering Sea crab uh, in almost what feels like my entire adult life when I ate it, almost... Annually, every Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's, uh, as a child, it's understandable to me that our Republican governor is not going to call out climate change for what it is. I applaud his recognition around renewables and around better fire management, which he frames as a timber issue, and around making sure that we have good response times for disasters and supporting community members and applauding the families in Wrangell who really stepped up. I am flustered that he doesn't name it for what it is, which is global warming and our role and responsibility in mitigating the effects as best we can and implementing the technologies that we have available to us to try to close the gap between what is happening today and what will happen tomorrow with the degree increases in temperature. I can spend all day wanting him to say the words, but that's not going to shift the policy. It's going to be things like passing a renewable portfolio standard. It's going to be things like ensuring that our rural schools get the resources they need to prop up their buildings and invest in their infrastructure for what is coming down the pipeline. It's going to be using the science and the communities to inform our fisheries practices. It's going to be all those things. And if I can get him to move a little bit and I can look past the fact that the language isn't being said, we're going to figure out a pathway forward. But it is very frustrating.
2: So the two members of the House of Representatives that are joining us today are uh, uh, kind of Looking, I don't forward, but uh, looking, uh, looking at a piece of legislation that is uh, supposedly coming, that uh, is going to be debated, uh, SB 140, which is a large education package. Did the governor, in his speech, provide you any direction or insight as to how he is going to deal with the education package that might or might not be coming his way, Genevieve? I mean, did was there any insight from the governor?
1: He led with the initiative to offer teacher bonuses for recruitment and retention. And, you know, in a vacuum, the policy is great. But then when you add in the context that we're at and what we can do to invest in keeping teachers here in the long term, our educators, staff members, schools, principals, school board members. I've had so many different parents and families in my area that are really hit hard by the inadequate education funding that we need to increase funding to the base student allocation. If you're going to pick one education policy to fund, that's the area to put your money in, not necessarily for uh, bonuses, even though that is also great. But we're in a world of restricted funding and limited resources, and we have to make tough decisions about how do we allocate that.
2: Uh, Rep. Josephson, any insight from the governor on how to go forward with uh, with public education and all of the things that are included in SB 140?
0: Well, taken together with a couple interviews that I've read uh, where he talks about, um, and it's pretty clear, that the, the reforms that uh, were amended into 140 by the House Rules Committee on Saturday last, so few days ago, um, were his ideas principally. Um, And, you know, he talked about charter schools about not doing business the way we've done it in the past. But I think what he misses, and as a certified teacher, I I sort of am aware of this, I think, is that education is hard work. There isn't going to be a silver bullet. Um, This is why one of the first bills I filed in 2013 was to extend the school year to 190 days from 180 days. We just need more contact with kids and, and more uh, sweat equity, both from, from everyone, parents, teachers, kids. Everyone's going to have to work harder. Um, but we need the resources to do this. And there seems to be, uh, both from the governor and I think his party to some degree, this disbelief that inflation is real. And, and I don't understand that because um, they, they clearly think it's real when it comes to the president and, and the national scene. They talk about it a lot. Um, and and complain about it a lot. But when we say, hey, the same thing is present here, there's this um, no, move along, nothing to see here kind of approach. Um, So no, he didn't give us any indication other than in those media interviews of a path forward for funding education. And the state is going to get sued over this. People aren't kidding around. So, you know, one way to forestall that is to um, meet the obligation that inflation presents.
2: Senator Tobin, uh, basically all day, every day, I see you uh, working on uh, trying to get to yes on public education. Did the governor's speech provide you any insight on the way forward?
3: I understand where he's coming from, and I, like Genevieve, applaud his want to increase teacher salaries. I think teachers should be paid like doctors, which they are in places like the Netherlands and Iceland and Denmark, which we often hear people tout those policies. I also understand and recognize that a teacher does not operate in a vacuum. We have an educator in Genevieve's district who is fundraising for a vacuum for his classroom because there's not janitors who are there to clean the classroom and keep it hygienic. We are in a situation where we don't have student nutrition specialists. We are struggling to make sure that we have good HR folks, that we have people who are making sure the teachers are getting paid in payroll. All of those pieces are falling down. And I get flustered when I hear this mantra, this this drumbeat of teacher incentive bonuses When we forget about all the people who make it possible for teachers to be in that classroom doing the great work that they're doing. Again, it's a yes and approach. Let's give our teachers a pay boost by radically increasing the BSA to a number that is so high and what I think we at this table would say is unimaginable that they can not only get the $1,500 that he's talking about, But we also can give them the aides, the special education instructors, the janitors, the student nutrition specialists, the library folk, that they then can do all of the things that we've asked them to do in every piece of legislation we have passed.
2: So I promised you all I would not keep you beyond 30 minutes, and we are just over 30 minutes. So I've got to go to my final question. Uh, I'm going to start with Genevieve. So if you could choose one person, dead or alive, you get to drop them into the Alaska state legislature and they get a vote. Who would that person be?
1: I, I would love to just talk to Thelma Buckhold and just see her back in the legislature. And for context, she was the first Filipino-American that was elected to any state legislature, Filipina specifically, uh, woman um, in any state legislature in the nation. And I have... Endless questions for her because she is kind of my frame of reference for someone who has experienced so many of the different issues and dynamics that I currently am in right now. Additionally, she accomplished a ton when she was in office, after office, and so to talk to someone who's had the different experiences of being a woman of color, being an immigrant, having to try to toggle between the institutionalized body that we're in while also being from a different country. So many questions for her. And she did a really good job doing
2: what she did. Andy J, same same question. Who would the person be? Well,
0: this admittedly is low-hanging fruit. So get ready for low-hanging fruit. But it, it's got to be Dr. King. And, and let me tell you something. I mentioned him in a speech before the AFL American Federation of Labor, a couple days ago. And people forget that it's not just the civil rights movement, which he mastered uh, and, and was the architect of, principal architect of. But when he died, um, and the context of me mentioning him, is people forget he was at an AFSME strike in Memphis. It wasn't about, well, it turned out that the poorest workers in the city of Memphis were black, that's true. But uh, it was about economic improvement and workplace safety. Because two sanitation workers trying to get out of the rain had been crushed in a garbage machine. That's what brought uh, the men out that said, with the placards that said, I am a man and you're going to treat me better than this. And, you know, it went so far as to, they had to pay for their own uniforms. Um, they had no place to shower after work. Basic fundamental things. So, so Dr. King was fighting for economic freedom Um, And of course, he was very involved in the anti-Vietnam effort as well. Um, But what I was trying to tell these ASEA, Alaska State Employees Association, under the umbrella of AFSCME, uh, where Dr. King was in Memphis, is that they, and I've mentioned this on the floor when I've introduced them, they are connected to a tragic but powerful episode in labor history, and they should be
2: incredibly proud of that. Two really good choices. So thank you so much. I want First, I want to thank you both for taking the time out of a late night after the speech to come down here and, and chat. So thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. So you've been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on Substack, Spotify, and the Apple podcast app. And Genevieve, what's the other app you listen to?
1: Pocket Cast. Ira Glass from This American Life said so I should download it. It's good.
2: Pocket Cast. I didn't even know. Who knew? Um, I'm Mike Mason, so please be safe out there.